Hello and welcome to Hilo with Emrata. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. And for those of you who are just joining us for the first time, let me just give you a rundown of how things work. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we put out new episodes of Hilo with Emrata. On Tuesdays, I do a feature-length interview with culturally relevant guests like Taylor Lorenz, Esther Perel. We had on Troy Savon, Victoria Mornay, Flo Millie. On Thursdays, we do Emrata Asks, where I do a deep dive into a topic that's been on my mind. It could be related to current events or a recent interview or a book. Every Thursday, we also drop an exclusive subscriber-only talkback episode where I answer your questions and respond to your comments. If you want to hear what you're missing, use the free trial feature on Apple Podcasts to check it out. I really love those episodes um, and encourage you to listen. Hilo was recently selected as a finalist in the Signal Awards. You can vote for us in the Best Pop Culture and Variety Show category for listener's choice, and we'll include the link in the episode description to make it easy for you. And the last day to vote is Thursday, October 5th, so please do it before then. One of the things that I find really interesting about modern fashion is the way designers reflect the cultures and communities they see around them and their work. And because it's been the 50th anniversary of hip hop, we wanted to talk about the connection between hip hop and high fashion. For decades now, designers of all stripes have taken inspiration from the streets, from the styles and preferences of so-called urban youth. And it's a two-way street, obviously, with hip hop artists drawing inspiration from and elevating, we're gonna get into this later, designer fashion brands. To unpack this topic, I wanted to speak to an expert on the subject. This week, we're talking to Soumya Krishna Murthy. She is a pop culture expert and writer. She is the author of the brand new book, Fashion Killer, How Hip Hop Revolutionized High Fashion, which comes out on October 10th. You can pre-order it now. Right after this break, we're going to cover many things, Little Kim, Tommy Hilfiger, Pharrell, so much more. The first season of Hilo is coming to an end and we want your help to celebrate the one year anniversary. We want to know your favorite moments from the first year of the show and why you love them so much. Leave us a message and let us know your favorite guests, quotes, conversations, and we might use that for a very special episode. So go to Hilo.fm or use the Hilo hotline 42 Hilo 4. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. All right, let's get started. Cool. Thank you so much for being here. Obviously, you're a music journalist and a major hip hop head. <laughs> I was very impressed. But why the subject for your first book? Tell me what got you into the story. So the origin of Fashion Killer was actually an article I had done for Double XL Magazine a couple years before. And as I was researching it, I got to interview people like ASAP Ferg and Misa Hilton. And what was fascinating was that there was really no definitive work about this subject. So fast forward a couple years later, I'm contemplating what's going to be my first book project, which for writers is like, you know, it's a big deal, right? I, I kind of liken it to you're a mixtape artist and now you're putting out your like first album. And for me, I really wanted 
to tell an important hip hop story, but through a lens that's prestigious and also very comprehensive. So it just so happened that hip hop's 50th anniversary is this year. So take three years back, I was already thinking about, okay, when this book comes out, what would really be just a great contribution to hip hop? And Fashion Killa is a 50 year retrospective. So it starts in 73 and it literally ends with Pharrell getting his job at Louis Vuitton in 2023. So I kind of like to joke that I really couldn't. I don't think Pharrell thought about it when he was taking that job, but it was a really nice period and a, a great way for me to stick that stick that landing at the end. So you're like, thanks, thanks, thanks so much for that. Yeah. That was perfect. Because ending a book is hard. Totally. Right? I feel starting and ending because those are really kind of the um, what people remember, right? So it's you how found your bookmark. I really did find the bookmark. Yeah, for we sure. We love that. You tell a story early on in the book about why hip hop was kind of born out of a woman's desire to look as fly as possible for back to school season. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So it's funny. So with Hip Hop 50 now, and I always like to put the asterisks, right? When it comes to something like culture, there isn't a definitive starting point. It really, you know, goes back eons prior to August 11th, 1973. But we do like to celebrate anniversaries and birthdays and hip hop. So that's kind of what people have put down as like a stake in the ground. So August 11th, 73, was this iconic rec room party that DJ Cool Herc was spinning. And it's been talked about. It's part of lore now. Um, I don't know if you followed any of the Hip Hop 50 concerts and celebrations, but Herc was everywhere. But what a lot of people don't know was the party was really for his sister, Cindy, and she wanted it as a way to fundraise for her back to school wardrobe. So when I found that, I'm like, what a great way to show like from day one, fashion, wanting to look good, um, aspirational fashion has been there really since the origin. Tied to the beginning of hip hop. Yeah. For people to properly appreciate the origin and evolution of certain styles, I want to give my listeners just some context. There are so many gems in the chapter of your book titled Luxury Law. Um, Can you talk a little bit about in the sumptuary laws of the 18th century and how those paved the way for what was to come? So it's interesting. When I was figuring out how to tell this story, it was really important to go beyond just name dropping artists, talking about nice clothes, because oftentimes both hip hop and fashion, I feel in the literary world are viewed through that cursory lens, right? Let's be honest, it's not taken that seriously. And for me, it was really important. Let's dive into the psychology. Why do people want to dress a certain way? What is this idea of wanting to wear logos or putting on a fashion line that maybe they don't fuck with you? Like, where does that psychology come from? So we have to go back to this idea of sumptuary laws, which are essentially regulations on things that are like fineries, right? So back in the day, it it was really this idea that starting in, in Europe, royalty made kind of proclamations of who can wear what. And oftentimes that was a great way to differentiate a royal versus a common person. Then we come into America and we saw a lot of this was codified in law, but other times it was sort of unspoken what a free person could wear versus someone who's enslaved, for example, or oftentimes your clothing showing your occupation and thus your stature in life. So when it comes to the modern mentality, it's really this idea of clothing signifies not just who you are, but who you want the world to see that you are. And it's the it's that old adage, right? Just for the job you want, not the job you have. 
And when it goes back to luxury, it's not a surprise. If you didn't grow up with a lot, of course, you want to showcase to the world a social signaling that not only can I afford it, but I'm worthy. Um, I'm someone who deserves respect, deserves love. It's really so much more complex than just throwing on clothes. Like when we go and make that decision, we don't even think about it, but it's all really kind of embedded into subconscious and in history. On that note, you talk a lot about the color purple. Can you talk some a little bit about that? Well, it's fun. I mean, I am. I happen to wear yeah, purple today. You are so, purple. so maybe I was I was taking on that role. But yeah, in, in ancient Rome, I mean, something like purple was um really relegated to royalty. And if we look, you know, there's there's this great story, and it's not sure if it's like a legend or it actually happened of, you know, an emperor who tried to wear that color and wasn't of the right stature and ended up getting killed for it. But it makes sense, right? This idea of purple being regal, representing royalty, um, Ralph Lauren's line, right? The, the purple label line, it's really kind of like the best of the best. And it shows that when we're talking about luxury, it isn't merely just these houses. It can be something as simple as a color. It can be something like a fabric. And it's um, it's pretty interesting to see that even back in ancient Rome, I mean, they were having debates and, and fights and literal killings over who could wear what. Yeah, so interesting. There are a couple models that you single out as playing key roles between hip hop and high fashion. Can you talk to me about Tyson Beckford and why he represented a paradigm shift? Tyson was very interesting because a lot of people don't know he was discovered in the Source magazine. So for anybody who knows hip hop, that was like the definitive hip hop Bible. The same way Siskel and Ebert for movies were were kind of the benchmark in hip hop, the Source's five mics either made an artist or broke them. And to have five mics meant that like you made it. So um, I was able to speak to the Source's first fashion editor, Julia Chance, as well as Sonia Maget, who worked with her. And they told me these great stories about how Tyson was discovered in Washington Square Park. And he just had this really cool look. Um, a lot of people don't know behind the scenes, and Tyson has talked about this publicly. He had kind of dabbled in hip hop a little bit. He was, you know, doing some street things he shouldn't have been doing. He was a tough kid, but he just had that striking look. And they decided to feature him in the magazine, and that really catapulted his relationship, obviously, later becoming the face of Ralph Lauren in everybody's music video from Britney Spears to, to Tony Braxton. And I did a lot of research at the time of why Tyson was so was such a, a paradigm shift. And he really represented this new face of black male beauty, where, you know, the chiseled cheekbones, um, this kind of multi-ethnic features, especially coming from um, his Jamaican parentage, his Chinese lineage as well with the almond eyes. And, you know, he was a darker skinned gentleman as well. And that really was a shift from sort of this kind of Anglo-centric view of beauty that oftentimes models of color are still expected to fit into, right? Like you can be a different ethnicity, but you have to be attractive through this sort of Eurocentric lens. And he changed that, not to mention the fact that he did have this sort of edge to him and it felt very authentic because he was living, you know, living that life. So I think Tyson really was this great amalgamation of beauty and fashion and hip hop and just that energy all together. And it's not surprising that someone like Ralph Lauren would really sort of take to that. And I think there was there was a great interview where they mentioned that they really 
empathized with each other first meeting, both being immigrants, right, and the children of immigrants. So that kind of American dream story that I think is very much baked into that Ralph Lauren lineage and DNA, right? It sort of represents what is Americana? What is the American dream? So to have someone like Tyson, who in many ways is not that Norman Rockwell perspective of of what a handsome, strapping man should be, to be the face, I think was was a very powerful move and clearly paid off. I was that was my actually my next question was about uh, Ralph Lauren. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the low heads and the low lives and why you think specifically Ralph Lauren's brand resonated so strongly with black and brown folks? So it's interesting because if you look at the Ralph Lauren world, it does not include black and brown people at all, right? In the beginning, it was sort of this idea of what, you know, like the New England wasp Summer in the Hamptons. Yeah, very much the Kennedys, Camelot. Like those are the things that come to mind, which of course is intentional because that would attract a large swath of America to want to wear those clothes. Rich white people. Yeah, basically. And if you're not that, you kind of want to emulate it, right? I mean, let's be honest, who really plays polo in America? But like everyone has a polo shirt or knows what it is because of the little insignia, right? And I think, you know, when it comes to hip hop again, Polo was just one of those brands a lot of people grew up with feeling very disconnected from that vision. The Low Lifes are a fascinating group because they were basically a gang of guys from Brooklyn and they stole Ralph Lauren. Like that's what they did. It would go to like the boutiques in, in Manhattan, steal a bunch of Ralph Lauren and then run away and then wear that around their neighborhood. And I was able to interview uh, one of like the heads of the lowlifes. Um, his name is Thurston Howell III. And what he said was it wasn't just kind of wearing these clothes and feeling, again, that you're a part of this polo world, but also to be able to wear those clothes in neighborhoods like Brownsville at that time, not get robbed, not get killed, is kind of a sign, right? A sign of wow. power. Yeah. And a lot of it too, it goes back to this idea of masculinity and this notion of if I'm able to move around dangerous spaces being unharmed, then that adds to my reputation, that adds to my ego. So it, it, it's very interesting. And it's funny because full circle many years later, Ralph did a documentary and he actually included the lowlifes. And there's this great Instagram posts that Thurston had shared where Ralph sent him like a handwritten letter, like, thank you for all your support. And it's funny because years before that would have gotten a lot of people locked up that that so-called support that viral marketing, grassroots marketing, if you will. But many years later, I think even Ralph saw that that was able to be a very powerful ambassador in those neighborhoods where Polo wasn't advertising. They specifically work, didn't have shops in those neighborhoods, but people like the lowlifes and various hip hop artists, um, you know, like Raekwon, for example, that famous snow beach jacket in, in the Wu-Tang video. I mean, so many people saw that and they immediately wanted to buy it, right? I was just at a Hip Hop 50 exhibit downtown and I saw that and I immediately I'm thinking Raekwon. So I'm not even thinking Ralph Lauren. I'm not thinking the model who wore it. All I see is Raekwon in my mind. And that just shows how powerful music and those that visual element can be where an artist, I mean, now we take it for granted, right? But this idea that an artist, a rap artist could be such a great ambassador for a luxury brand, start a long time ago. Totally. I 
wanted to just cover the polo meetups that they'd have at the skating rinks as well. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, where people are like showing, you know, who has what. And we got to remember, this is time before social media. Like now everything you do goes on the gram. Great. But before, if you wanted to show your friends like the hot shit you had that they didn't have, you had to meet up in person. Right. So, but also think about how powerful that was, right? So it's kind of this notion of creating like niche influencers before we even kind of thought of that. Micro influencers. Yeah, yeah. micro influencers. And Absolutely. building community. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. I interviewed so many artists and especially those who grew up, um, you know, 70s, 80s, like, you know, who were your fashion icons? Who'd you look up to? Most people, it was like the neighborhood drug dealer. Like that was the person who could afford the clothes. They had the foreign cars, the pretty girls, the money. Like that was the micro influencer, you know, outside of, of course, athletes and celebrities. But this was someone that you felt either you knew or you had some sort of like a parasocial relationship with, you know, there was a little bit of a fear and a danger in it, like he's a bad boy. And that's kind of where it started. And it's funny, now we've come full circle where brands are trying to find those people, right? Yes. They're equating it to like social media followers and that's the metric, but it's the same thing. Like the most popular kid in school is a micro-influencer, whether they realize it or not, right? Totally. Like, <laughs> like, it's, it's so funny to think about it. It's really interesting. Were you the micro-influencer in your high school? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I, I wish. <laughs> okay. um, actually, no, because people who peak too early. It's never good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I actually just saw the uh, quarterback of my uh, high school, sort of what happened to him. mm, And yeah. That's a thing on TikTok people talk about is like, you don't want to peak too early. Yeah. So shout out to the nerds. Because for those of us in high school, straight A's, we play the role. Longevity is unmatched. We age really well. Exactly. (laughs) We will be right back after this with more. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. You chronicle a lot of uh, really awful moments of cultural appropriation that are very cringy. Can you talk to me about the Isaac Mizrahi and his show with Sandra Bernhard? Yeah, so 1991 was very much a seminal year of where high fashion was taking inspiration from hip hop, but not really giving credit to the culture. And that was the year where I focused on a few important line. So one was Karl Lagerfeld and Chanel. So that was the sort of famous uh, collection where you're seeing the multiple gold chains and the nameplates and the baseball cap to the side. Charlotte Nouvelle, who was also uh, a designer at the time, and she was known more, again, for sort of like Connecticut casual, but for some reason she was pulling from what she saw when she was um, taking the subway around New York. Isaac Mizrahi had a collection that he felt was very much sort of inspired by what he was seeing on the streets. But, you know, in in many ways, it it was this idea of both respecting and kind of being inspired, but not actually pulling people from the culture. So for his fashion show that year, he had um, Sandra Bernhardt, the comedian, performing some version of a rap, I suppose. Like now, if it was on like Instagram or TikTok, it would have gone viral for all the wrong reasons. But it was this idea of, again, pulling from black culture, Latin culture, what they're seeing in in New York, 
but not actually pulling people from the community to be a part of the decision making, the aesthetics. And even back in 91, I mean, there were some vocal critics saying, why is it allowed if Karl Lagerfeld does it? But if a kid is wearing something similar on the street, they're getting questioned by the cops. Right. And what what does that what does that mean? Um, and this is an ongoing conversation in fashion, even to this day, right? What is that line between inspiration and appropriation, um, a loving homage versus just like jacking someone else's stuff and basically monetizing it for yourself? Yeah. Um, and making sure those people who get paid, right? Get paid. I think also, to me, if someone's going to make a real investment in a community, it's the creators. It's also the people, right? And being totally. cognizant of people beyond just like the the sale and 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 what that looks like. Um and for me, I think also I would love to see that representation in the C suite, behind the scenes, right? Not just Absolutely. like the celebrity name who's getting all the accolades and or the big one check. or black or brown person yeah. on the storefront, but then no one working at yeah. the, in the corporation. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, this is another thing that's obviously a big part of your book, but also really a conversation that's happening a lot um, in the world. The idea of quiet luxury versus basically saying it with your chest, um, which you were just talking about with Chanel. Can you talk to me about those competing aesthetics and how the tide shifted from those discrete kind of logos to the, the jumbo, jumbo kind of loud? Yeah. You know, I think one thing about luxury is that especially when you first are able to attain it, right? So this is either someone who's sort of like nouveau riche, or maybe they just happen to save their money and got bought that one statement piece. You want to share it with the world. I, I kind of have have this joke about you can't see somebody's like mortgage around their neck, right? Or people don't walk around showing you their 401k and how much they're investing. And that's very much a part of American culture and capitalism. It's not just what you can buy, but it's also showing the world that you can buy that. So that very much played into the idea of big logos. We saw that very much with Dapper Dan in the beginning, where his clientele wanted logos from MCM or Louis Vuitton or Gucci, but those brands weren't doing a snorkel covered in their house logo, right? Or a head-to-toe look in the house logo. So he would take those, you know, logos and basically create his own like DIY bespoke creations. Later on, brands like Tommy Hilfiger leaned into logos where even though the industry kind of said, hey, you might not want Tommy plastered over people's chests. He said, no, I think that's what people want. And that ended up being not only his calling card, but ended up really amplifying the house. When Snoop Dogg wore that famous rugby at Saturday Night Live, a young Kanye West was watching at home in Chicago, like his mind blown. What is Tommy? I have to have it, right? So it's this idea of amplifying what you're able to buy. And again, this idea of social signaling. It's funny with quiet luxury because to me, I feel with anything in pop culture, the pendulum swings. So we were just at at an era where it was just everything kind of ostentatious with Instagram, even like, you know, from like beauty trends, it was all about more, 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 right? The full face, everyone was doing a duck face. We've all been there, no judgments, you know, and just showcasing everything in, in your face. So like with everything, People want the antithesis. And at some point, you're going to get that 180. So I understand that now it's very 
in style is to, you know, have quiet luxury. In many ways, it reflects people who for luxury isn't that big of a deal, right? When you meet people who have like real money, generational wealth, they don't talk about money. That's just regular to them, right? That's normal. It's like breathing. I think what's interesting in hip hop is as certain people like Jay-Z, for example, are now hitting that billionaire's club, their style of dress is much more quiet. Like Jay would be the type of guy, yeah, he might have an Audemars on his wrist worth more than like a yacht, but black turtleneck, some jeans, just regular. Now that whole look head to toe might be worth thousands of dollars, but it's kind of more in line with what you would see like a tech billionaire or a CEO of like a Fortune 500 company. And it makes sense because, I mean, he's grown, like he's a grown man, and he's also navigating in those worlds. So walking into a business meeting, I don't know, with like a Jeff Bezos with a huge logo on, unless it's your logo, seems a little bit um, ostentatious and a bit much. So I understand too, as hip hop is now going to that rare, those rarefied rooms that we are going to see some group of people with the quiet luxury. But for everyone, Jay, there's a 17 year old who just signed their record deal for seven figures. So you know what? They're going to go crazy. And I can't be mad at them, right? Imagine being 17, getting millions of dollars. I don't think you're going to go for the subdued, neutral blazer and uh, turtleneck combo. I think you're going to go out, go to the Versace store, go to Louis Vuitton and just go crazy. You mentioned Versace and I wanted to, um, she, Donatella's actually come on the podcast and we wanted to talk about little Kim. In the book, you talk about Kim's iconic looks and the oversized influence on fashion and culture, including her friendship with Donatella Versace. Can you just give me a quick soundbite on Kim's influence on designer fashion? Little Kim really is one of the the most iconic hip hop artists when it comes to high fashion. And she's someone who not only wore these sort of daring looks, but was very bold in using her body and sexuality and music in just kind of embodying this idea of a confident, sexy, rebellious woman. And I could see why fashion be very drawn to it. Very early on, she forged relationships with people like Don Versace, Marc Jacobs, David LaChapelle, and many ways became muses for them. Um, you know, there's this great image that that you can see online where it's from like a Versace shoot. It's like little Kim, Donatella, Missy. Kim and Donatella look almost like mirror images, right? It's like the bleach blonde hair draped in gold and jewels. And they kind of look like sisters from, from, from another mother, which is, which is interesting. But I think Kim was just very much unafraid and wanted to be in these spaces that now, again, decades later, every artist wants to. You now look at Met, the Met Gala and someone like Cardi B is shutting down the red carpet. Paris Fashion Week, all of these places, it's, it's not uncommon to see artists, but really Little Kim is the, is the originator. And it's funny, there's like this ongoing controversy in the industry. Why hasn't she gotten sort of her flowers? She never got that Vogue cover. Um, she was never honored by the CFDA awards. And now is there something the industry can do? Because it's clear that there's so many people who were inspired by her back then and continue to be today. I was going to say, who do you think is kind of carrying that torch? Obviously, everyone's been influenced and followed in her steps. But do you think there's someone in particular? I have to give it up to Cardi B. I mean, I I, can't, I literally remember seeing these grainy videos of her back when she was stripping and would be on like 
Twitter, just her making little funny quips and jokes. Then she went into the uh, reality show world, which, again, is not known for being high fashion. But in a matter of really just years, she was able to go from that to being the darling of Paris Couture Week. Like, it's it's mind-blowing. But one thing about Cardi B, I think, is, again, she really is unafraid. And to me, she wears the clothes. The clothes don't wear her. I just saw this video of her at the uh, Scaparelli show. And th- those are major designs, right? Like, you might be having a lion head sitting on your shoulder. It's very hard for even a professional model to rock those clothes, let alone a non-model. And for Cardi, she just has so much fun with it. She's, you know, willing to take these risks. Sometimes it's a hit, sometimes it's a miss. But you have to do that, I think, if you want to be really sort of a fashion icon. And I think, you know, there's a reason she was the first female rapper on the cover of American Vogue, right? Because very quickly, she not only took over the music world, but she took over the fashion world. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of kind of conversation about people not getting their dues. And I think that's why it was so shocking to you that this book hadn't been written. And there's obviously so much racism in that. How do you think the world has changed? I mean, you mentioned like the importance of actually having people at the table who are employees of the company that aren't just the faces of the brand, but are also influencing it. Do you think that we've, you know, gotten there or what, where, where do you see kind of us with racism and fashion? I think there have definitely been strides in the positive direction. I think racism is societal, right? So, of course, something like the fashion industry, which still very much, I think, prides itself in gatekeeping, whether the barriers to entry be economic or who you know, right? It's very much one of those industries. You know, I think race is a big part of it. And the other is gender. You know, I spoke to quite a few women for this book, and they said, I don't get the same opportunities as even my male counterparts. And that's something that, again, just as an industry, as a society, I think needs to be ameliorated for us to see actual change. Um, You know, I think right now the fashion industry is very much into collaborations. They want to bring people from hip hop into these sort of like creative director roles. I'd love to see more women. You know, again, it seems to mostly be men. And I I would love to see more of a mix there. Um, Also, just to mix it in, you know, age and background, like, Oftentimes, it's let's find the hot person of the moment, glom on to what they're doing, and then they're going to be discarded, right? But what about this idea of investing in people over the long term? That's how you get someone like an Andre Leon Talley, right? Because that that's a career in fashion, not just, all right, you did this one collaboration with a brand and we never hear from you ever again. So I think, you know, there are strides in the right direction. But like with every industry, I think there's definitely more that can be done both in public facing venues, but also behind the scenes, right? When it comes to hiring, wage transparency, like I'm sure if we start to see who's making what in these companies, there is probably a discrepancy. You know, so I think all of those things have to be have to be sort of considered. And for any company, if you're going to utilize hip hop, if you want to get that cool and get that fan base and get those dollars, I think that making a long-term meaningful investment makes more sense than just what is the flavor of the moment. Because I think when you're kind of in that mindset, you're perpetually looking for that next that next look, that next vibe. 
um, which I don't really think is a, a long-term vision. Totally. I couldn't agree more. I feel that way very strongly as well. You researched this book for three years. You mentioned it. Um, is there anything that you cut out of the book that you wish you could have kept? Yeah. Um, so one thing about book writing, it it feels comprehensive and then also like you haven't done enough, right? And especially for me because I'm putting that first real like stake in the ground, I wanted to do the story justice. Uh, the book follows a 50-year chronology, but every chapter can stand on its own. So if you're someone who just wants to read about Little Kim, there's that, there's that chapter. If you just want to know about streetwear, there's that chapter. But with that, I mean, I interviewed over 100 people. And, you know, sometimes you'll have a two-hour-long conversation and take one line from that. And that's just, like, the nature of nonfiction writing. Other times, like, there was a whole chapter I wanted to do about photographers. So I'd interviewed Jeanette Beckman and Jonathan Mannion and all these kind of giants of hip-hop photography, but I just couldn't fit it. So in my mind, when we do the uh, – deluxe edition or the paperback, you know, maybe I can add that as, as kind of like a nice bonus content. But yeah, but I think there's always when, when you write a book, it's funny, it's, it's this idea that you have to write the book you want to write. Yeah. So there might be someone who picks up this book and something really inspires them like, okay, I want to go down that rabbit hole. And maybe that'll inspire the next book. So I, I hope that it does that, right. And I think that's what really these kind of cultural moments are about is you try to be as comprehensive as possible. You can't you can't name every single designer, every artist, every moment, but hopefully it's it's for somebody who is a is a total neophyte, you're gonna learn a lot. I think even for fans, if you're a fan of hip hop or pop culture or celebrity, you're gonna learn a lot. But I think there's always more. And that also keeps it exciting, right? Totally. That this is like a living, breathing culture. And who knows what the next 50 years will bring. Fashion Killer out 1010. Yes, so definitely check it out. And you know, it, it really is a love letter to to hip hop, to fashion. And I think, you know, there, there's something in it for everybody. So I'm excited. I love the point you made about, you know, you can check out a chapter because there, there is there's so much in the book um, that I think people will really enjoy. But if they don't want to take it all on, you can kind of check out each chapter on its own. And it's really nice to read. Yeah. And there's 40 images because I know some people, yes, I get it. I love the images in the middle. You go in, you just want to open and see the pictures. I get it. I totally get it. Um, and what's cool. So some of the pictures you might have seen, right? So something like Kanye's famous Paris Fashion Week, his, let's say, coming out party, for lack of a better term, where it was like him and Virgil and his whole crew. But there's a lot of images that even for me were a surprise, like that Biggie wore Bape back in the 90s, right, you know, right before he passed. And there's a great story where it, the the outfit he wore didn't fit him. So actually, the photographer just draped it over his body. So he oh wasn't God. even wearing it. I have to look at that again. Um, and he actually apparently ordered custom bape and sadly had, you know, tragically been murdered right after. Um, there's a great image of Tupac in Milan from the photographer David McLean. And it's just this quiet moment of Pac walking down the street. He's in Versace. His head is down. It's it's like a work of art. It's beautiful. So I think, again, even for people who might feel like, oh, I've seen all the pictures, I promise you, open up the middle and there's going to be some new stuff because even I was surprised. Awesome. Um, yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you so much. 
All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of High Low with Emrata. That was our Thursday episode. I loved talking about what she learned writing this book and her perspective on hip hop in fashion. I thought particularly was interesting the idea of micro influencing pre internet. Thank you always for listening. We'll be back on Tuesday with a brand new episode. And as always, I like to remind you all, I do a third episode every week. It's Talk Back. That's where I take your voice notes and messages and play them on the show and answer your questions, respond to your comments, kind of continue the conversation from episodes of the show. You can leave your voice notes through hilo.fm or by calling our Hilo hotline at 42 Hilo. If you're listening through Spotify, you can always just weigh in through the Q&A feature on the app or on YouTube. Feel free to comment. We also check out the hashtag Hilo. Don't forget, please let me know your name, preferred pronouns, and where you're from so I can respect your preferences. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or at Hilo.fm to listen every Thursday. And don't forget to join in on the conversation using hashtag Hilo. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Hilo with Emrata is a Sony Music Entertainment and Bitch Era Media production. Our executive producers are me, Emily Ratajkowski, Matt Raz, and Sarita Wesley. Our showrunner is Matt Raz. Our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh.